Spike, really becoming one of our nation's experts in vascular disease. His research has been on the physiologic regulatory mechanisms of the vascular structures and on outcomes and treatment in patients who have vascular uh, disorders. Mark has won along the way several important awards that I just want to call attention to. He's been recognized with the Vascular Disease Foundation President's Award for Leadership and very importantly, the American Heart Association Council on Peripheral Vascular Disease Distinguished Achievement Award. Mark, as you may know, is the current president of the American Heart Association. And among their campaigns is this campaign this week about calling attention to vascular and heart disease in women, therefore the wearing of the red, which we'll hear a little bit more about in just a moment. Um, Mark has written and is the editor of a book called Vascular Medicine, and he's the editor emeritus of the journal Vascular Medicine. Given all of this attention to vascular medicine, I think we have an expert today who will tell us about this topic, peripheral artery disease, clinical insights, and contemporary treatments to preserve life and limb. There are no financial um, uh, issues related to today's talk, no conflicts of interest to declare. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you, Rich, and uh, good morning, everyone. So yes, this is Heart Month. Uh, actually, uh, we're anticipating that uh, President Obama will make that proclamation, uh, and uh, we're also anticipating that there will be an enactment of Congress uh, confirming that for this month. And today is actually Go Red for Women Day, uh, which is an American Heart Association campaign to raise awareness of heart disease and stroke among women. And in fact, later today, there'll be a luncheon in Hanover. So I am very, very pleased when I look out and I see the red in the audience. And it just serves as a very important reminder to all of us that we need to redouble our efforts as we undertake research and improve systems of care for all people with heart and vascular disease. And today, we particularly want to raise that awareness among women. So peripheral artery disease, why is a cardiologist talking about peripheral artery disease? Here, there is such a tremendous uh, expertise in vascular disease among our vascular surgery section. But vascular disease is just not confined to revascularization. And indeed, our vascular surgeons don't confine their practice just to operating. But indeed, it's a much broader aspect. And the reason I want to speak to you about it today from the aspect of a cardiologist is because it is indeed caused by atherosclerosis and therefore has important implications for the entire cardiovascular system. So as Rich mentioned, I have uh, uh, no conflicts of interest to disclose. Let me begin by a definition of peripheral artery disease which is really the presence of a stenosis or occlusion in the aorta or one or more of the arteries supplying the limbs. And as I've already mentioned, it's typically caused by atherosclerosis. Now, there's other causes. A thrombus can form or an embolus can occur to occlude a peripheral artery. There are vasculitides that can affect peripheral arteries. There's entrapment syndromes, trauma, dissection. All these things can include a peripheral artery. But really, today, 
I'm going to talk about peripheral artery disease caused by its most common uh, etiology, which is atherosclerosis. And because atherosclerosis is a systemic disease, frequently associated with coronary artery disease and cerebral vascular disease, patients with peripheral artery disease, or PAD, are at increased risk of myocardial infarction, at increased risk for stroke, and for cardiovascular death. And because it affects the limbs, these individuals often have functional disabilities, sometimes symptomatic, as I'll be talking about, and sometimes so severe that the limb is put in jeopardy and at risk for amputation. This is not an uncommon problem. In fact, over 200 million persons worldwide are estimated to have PAD. And as with other manifestations of atherosclerosis, the prevalence increases with age. So at the ages of 45 to 49, 5 to 6 percent of the population, particularly in high-income countries, may have evidence of PAD. Once you exceed age 65, the prevalence exceeds 10 percent. And even older, it gets greater. So this is not an uncommon problem. Because of that, you will frequently encounter it in your population that you see in the clinic. As I've already mentioned, if it is a systemic disease, so if you're already encountering a patient who has evidence of atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease, prior myocardial infarction, that individual is at twofold increased risk of having peripheral artery disease. And as with other forms of atherosclerosis, there are fairly traditional risk factors that contribute to the risk of developing PAD smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. But two of these are really particularly impactful, and that is smoking. A current smoker has a two-fold increased risk of developing PAD, and an individual with diabetes has a 70% increased risk of developing PAD compared to a non-diabetic patient. And similarly, patients with high blood pressure are at increased risk, and those with elevated cholesterol. Now, how do you know your patient has PAD? Well, some of them have symptoms. The typical symptom, the one that you're most familiar with, is called intermittent claudication. Claudication coming from the Latin claudicato, which means to limp, is a symptom of muscle aching, pain, cramping, fatigue, typically in the calf, it could be in the thigh or foot, that occurs with walking and then subsides with rest. But even though that's the typical symptom, only 15% of patients with PAD typically present with that symptom. 33% have atypical symptoms. What is that? Well, they just say, I, something's not right when I walk. I can't keep up with my spouse. You know, I, I, maybe I get more tired than uh, he or she does. Uh, it's manifest as a functional disability, but not a classic symptom. One to 2% have critical limb ischemia. That's when the foot is in jeopardy. Patients may have pain in the foot, or they may have changes, including uh, ulcerations that aren't healing, or even gangrene. But what I really want to emphasize is that 50% of patients with PAD don't complain of any of these symptoms, and yet they have PAD. And as I'll go on to tell you in just a few minutes, even though they're not having symptoms, they're still at increased risk for other cardiovascular events, so it's important to detect PAD and initiate therapies. This is highlighted by our failure to really inform 
the public and our patients about We're doing better in informing people about symptoms and complications of heart disease and symptoms and complications of stroke. But we're failing miserably in other forms such as PAD, such that only one out of four people are even aware of PAD or comparable terms like peripheral vascular disease. And, and that's exemplified by this story, which was in the, World, uh, the Wall Street Journal several years ago, about this 71-year-old man from Edina, Minnesota. Uh, he, uh, he told the story that he would be walking up a hill about four blocks. He'd get this excruciating pain in his leg. He said, I thought it was a bad Charlie horse, so I sat down to have a smoke, and the cramps went away. And, and that's a very, very telling story because he didn't recognize that there was a vascular problem going on, and it's compounded by the fact that he was uh, partaking in a lifestyle habit that was increasing his risk for PAD. This is not a hard uh, disease to diagnose. That's the beauty of it. It is so easy to detect PAD in the office. First, feel the pulses. What does that mean? Well, you at least got to take off the shoes and socks and take a look at the feet and feel the dorsalis, pedis, and posterior tibial pulses and see if they're there. And it's all good. It's good to examine the other pulses of the leg as well, the femoral and popliteal arteries, and listening for bruises, particularly over uh, the groin. Some patients, you can even get better uh, indication of PAD if you simply elevate their legs and have them dorsiflex and plantarflex their, their ankle. And if there's significant peripheral artery disease, pallor will develop. And clearly, if there is evidence of critical limb ischemia manifest by ulcers or necrosis, it's really, really important that you pick up those findings in the office. Because failure to pick it up means that you're not going to move that patient along to the appropriate vascular specialist for definitive procedure to prevent limb loss. Now, obviously, PAD is not the only cause of leg pain. And as good doctors, you're going to be thinking, well, what's the differential diagnosis? And I've listed many things on this slide that you'll want to think about if a patient presents to you with leg symptoms, uh, lumbar spine stenosis, peripheral neuropathy, arthritis of the hip or knee, venous claudication, compartment syndrome, people who have cramps or restless leg syndrome, and the usual complaint that I might see in a referral is my feet are cold. That doesn't mean that they have PAD, even if they have cold feet. There's a lot of people just don't thermoregulate as well as others. Um, but these other things can cause leg pain, and you want to run through your mind which of these it might be as you encounter a patient with leg symptoms. But it is so important that you do a careful vascular exam to detect PAD. Not only that, there is a very simple test you can do in the office to make the diagnosis, and that is called the ankle brachial index. And I'm sure you've all heard about this, but probably most of you do not get an ankle brachial index when you see a patient. The ankle brachial index is no more than the ratio of the systolic blood pressure measured at the ankle to the systolic blood pressure measured over the brachial artery. And typically, one would do this with a handheld Doppler instrument. You put a sigmomanometric cuff on the arm and above each ankle, inflate it as you typically would do to take an arm blood pressure, deflate it, and listen for the onset of systole with your Doppler probe. 
Now normally, the systolic blood pressure at the ankle should be the same as the systolic blood pressure at the brachial artery because systolic blood pressure is determined by uh, left ventricular contraction. But in fact, the ankle pressure may even be slightly higher than the arm pressure because of pulse wave amplification. So if the ratio is less than one, that should raise the possibility of peripheral artery disease. Now recognizing there's variability of systolic blood pressures as you move from arm to leg, and assuming this is about a 10% variability, the ABI of less than 0.9 is considered diagnostic for PAD. And the lower the ABI, the more severe the PAD. In fact, comparing it to angiography, the ABI is 90% sensitive and 98% specific for a hemodynamically significant stenosis. Now, why is it important to even be thinking about that? And that really harkens back to what happens to these patients. And I like to put their prognosis in two buckets. One is cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And I've already emphasized the fact that they have systemic atherosclerosis most likely. And because of that, they're at increased risk of fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events. Over a five-year period of time, there may be a mortality rate of 15 to 30% and non-fatal cardiovascular events of 15 to 30%. But there's also the limb morbidity. There's the symptoms that they may have. And frequently that remains stable over a period of time, but in 10 to 20% of the cases, claudication may worsen. In 1 to 2% of cases over five years, they may go on to develop critical limb ischemia. So as we consider um, our therapies, we want to take into consideration cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, functional capacity and quality of life, and the risk of limb loss. So let me first uh, show you some data that emphasizes the cardiovascular aspects of their prognosis. And this is a study from the ABI collaboration. It was really a, uh, a meta-analysis of 16 studies of over 48,000 uh, people. And you'll see along the, uh, the x-axis the ABI. And we'll use a reference of about 1 to 1.1. As having a hazard ratio of close to one. As your ABI goes lower and lower, your risk of a death, typically from cardiovascular disease, increases. And in fact, for an ABI in the 0.8 ballpark, there's a twofold increased risk of death, and if it's even lower than that, less than 0.6, a fourfold increased risk of death. If you look at registries such as the REACH registry, which is a registry across the world of over 68,000 people who were entered into this registry because they had coronary disease or cerebral vascular disease or peripheral artery disease or multiple atherosclerotic risk factors, you will see that among the patients with, the, with PAD, there is a higher one-year event rate for a composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, and hospitalization. That should send the message. That's higher than it is for people who entered the registry because they had coronary disease, and higher if they had entered the registry because they had uh, manifestations of cerebral vascular disease, such as stroke or TIA. Now, I mentioned earlier that 50% of patients with PAD may be asymptomatic. That doesn't mean we should ignore them. In fact, I'm going to argue that we need to detect these people. And if you look at a, 
a German study. It's called the GET-ABI study. That's an acronym for the German Epidemiologic Trial and ABI study. And you look at this, uh, uh, this graph. In green are the, P the individuals who did not have PAD. In red are those who had PAD detected by an abnormal ABI but were asymptomatic. And in blue are those who had an abnormal ABI but also had symptoms. And compared to the individuals who did not have PAD, the risk of cardiovascular events, including MI, stroke, revascularizations, and amputations, were significantly greater. On the y-axis, you're seeing event-free survival. So significantly greater in the patients with PAD, even if they were asymptomatic. If they were symptomatic, suggesting a greater burden of disease, their event rates were even higher. A separate study from Germany, and this was based on a, a data obtained from their largest insurance uh, company of over 41,000 patients with PAD who were followed uh, for a period of years from 2009 to 2011. They looked at the risk of death and the risk of amputation depending on the severity of the symptoms. RF, which you see on the slide, stands for um, the, uh, the Rutherford classification. And the lower number means they're either asymptomatic, have claudication, and numbers like four, five, and six means that they have worsening forms of critical limb ischemia. And as you can see, as the symptomatic severity worsens, the risk of death and the risk of amputation increases. And among those who were the worst, those with Rutherford class four, five, and six, in the green, yellow, and red, you can see that over a four-year period, they may have up to a 50% mortality or greater and a very high risk of amputation. So keeping that in mind, our goals of treatment should take into consider both the risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes, we want to reduce their risk of MI, their risk of stroke, their risk of cardiovascular death, and if they're symptomatic, we want to address their symptoms, improve them, improve their quality of life, improve their ability to walk, and importantly, prevent progression of disease to critical limb ischemia and the possibility of limb loss. So there's traditional things that all of you know about that we use to treat patients with atherosclerosis to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events, lifestyle modification. For those who are overweight, weight reduction. If you're normal weight, weight maintenance. Complete cessation of smoking. Treating diabetes mellitus, and the current guidelines would recommend a target hemoglobin A1C of under 7%. Treating lipid disorders, and uh, our current guidelines call for patients with PAD as a coronary heart disease equivalent to be treated with a high-intensity statin. Hypertension, the current ACC AHA guidelines target a blood pressure of 140 over 90, and parenthetically, those guidelines are being updated as we speak now, and within the next several months, there may or may not be new targets for high blood pressure. And antiplatelet therapy. We're not doing so well as physicians in terms of treating these patients. Uh, Rena Pandi and I took a look at the National Heart and Nutrition Examination Survey database, and in NHANES, Ankle brachial index was measured over different periods of time. This is from 99 to 2004. And it turns out that if you focus on the patients who had PAD manifest by an abnormal ankle brachial index, less than 20% were on statins, about 20% were on arena and angiotensin system inhibitor, 
and less than a third were on antiplatelet therapy. So just looking at that data, you can see there's a lot we need to do as healthcare providers to identify and treat patients with PAD to reduce their risk. So here's some data to support that notion. Uh, this goes back over a decade. This is the heart protection study. Many of you will recall this. This was a study that compared simvastatin to placebo in patients with established cardiovascular disease or multiple risk factors. And it turns out, as you might suspect, that simvastatin reduced the risk of adverse cardiovascular events by about 22%. If you look at the patients with PAD in this study, the benefit was just as much. There was a 24% uh, reduction if they were randomized to simvastatin compared to placebo. We did a study to look at whether a statin not only, well, we didn't look at whether it improved cardiovascular events, but added to HPS, we looked at whether or not a statin would improve walking distance. And it turns out in a uh, trial that I did with Emil Moeller and uh, William Hyatt, if you compared uh, atorvastatin to placebo, the highest dose of atorvastatin, 80 milligrams uh, daily, increased walking distance. So there's some benefit conferred to the well. And if we look also at the REACH registry, which I alluded to just a moment ago, and you compared patients with PAD who were on statins compared to those who were not on statins, there was not only reduction in cardiovascular events, but there was reduced risk for worsening claudication or new critical limb ischemia, reduced risk for the need for limb revascularization, and reduced risk for amputation. So in the aggregate, these studies certainly support the notion that patients with PAD should be treated with statins. The HOPE trial, like uh, HBS, uh, randomized patients with established cardiovascular disease, but in this case, to the ACE inhibitor Ramipril. <coughs> and in this study, Ramipril reduced the risk of adverse cardiovascular events, MI, stroke, and cardiovascular death. If you look at the PAD subset, compared to those who did not have PAD, the benefit was the same. So PAD patients benefit in terms of reduction of cardiovascular events if they're treated with an ACE inhibitor versus placebo. Now, a few years ago, a number of us were asked to review a manuscript on the efficacy of the ACE inhibitor Ramipril in patients with claudication, and this was in JAMA. And those of you who might remember this would have been incredibly impressed by how much Ramipril improved claudication distance. And the data were meticulous. It couldn't be better. The placebo group didn't improve at all, and the Ramipril group improved by over 100% in terms of walking distance. The reason I'm showing you this, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. And it turns out that the first author of this article, which was widely cited last year, admitted that she had fabricated the data. So, as in everything else, the truth ultimately comes out, and this article uh, has been retracted. What about antiplatelet therapy? <clears throat> well, over a decade ago, the Antithrombotic Trials Collaboration did a meta-analysis of antiplatelet therapy in patients with different manifestations of cardiovascular disease. And this slide shows those with PAD. 
whether they had claudication or underwent a revascularization procedure. And those patients randomized to an antiplatelet agent, which was not necessarily aspirin. It could have been a, um, it could have been clopidogrel, it could have been dipyridomol or another antiplatelet agent. But in the aggregate, there was a 22% reduction in adverse cardiovascular events. So over years since that, we've all tried to determine whether or not an antiplatelet regimen was better than another antiplatelet regimen in reducing cardiovascular events in patients with PAD. So uh, some of you in the audience will remember the Capri trial from 1996. And the Capri trial was the first that compared aspirin to now the well-established uh, phenopyridine derivative, clopidogrel. And it looked at over 19,000 patients who were enrolled because they had a recent ischemic stroke or recent MI or established peripheral artery disease. And in the aggregate, there was an 8.5% reduction in adverse cardiovascular events in the patients who got clopidogrel versus those who got aspirin. <clears throat> but among the PAD subset, the benefit was much greater. It was 24% reduction. Now, some people might have said this was a statistical fluke, that one group did so much better than the others. But the study was not repeated exactly like this. But what came along next was the Charisma trial. Now, the Charisma trial, like Capri, enrolled patients who had a recent MI or stroke, ischemic stroke, or established PAD, and another group who had multiple cardiovascular risk factors. Overall, there was over 15,000 patients, and they were randomized to aspirin alone or the combination of aspirin plus clopidogrels, dual antiplatelet therapy better than just aspirin. And it turns out in the entire population of over 15,000 patients, the answer was no. There was no statistically significant benefit to dual antiplatelet therapy. But if you looked at the Capri-like population, putting aside those who had multiple risk factors, but those who had cerebral vascular disease or coronary disease or peripheral artery disease, there was a 12% reduction in the risk for adverse cardiovascular events. And if we drilled down, as we did, on the PAD cohort, even though the group was too small to get a statistic, have the power to see statistical benefit in terms of the primary endpoint, we did see a reduction in the risk for myocardial infarction and a reduction in the risk for hospitalization. So one might argue that dual antiplatelet therapy in patients with established atherosclerosis, and particularly PAD, may be better than aspirin alone. But of course, this is hypothesis generating and would need to be tested in additional trials. Now, antiplatelet therapy, uh, as I already mentioned, can involve a, a number of different drugs depending on their mechanism. I wanted to talk to you briefly about Vorapaxar, which is the uh, protease activated receptor antagonist. Vorapaxar inhibits uh, the thrombin receptor in platelets and thereby uh, re uh, inhibits downstream intracellular signaling, which will lead to activation of platelets. And the Timmy study group uh, performed this study called TRA, thrombin receptor antagonist 2P, secondary prevention, which looked at the efficacy of Vorapaxar on cardiovascular events in patients with established atherosclerosis. So not unlike some of the other studies I've already talked about, 
patients who enrolled with this study had a recent MI, a recent ischemic stroke, or established PAD. And there was over 26,000 patients followed for a median of two and a half years. And if you compare the patients who were randomized to Vorpaxar to those randomized to placebo, and I should mention all the patients were in background antiplatelet therapy like aspirin or clopidogrel. Those who were randomized to Vorpaxar had a 13% reduction in the risk for adverse cardiovascular events. So adding another antiplatelet agent may be beneficial. But there's a price, and the price of, of course, sorry. <coughs> All right, there we go. And the price, of course, is bleeding. So those randomized to Vorpax or on top of other antiplatelet agents had an increased risk of moderate to severe bleeding, 4.2% versus 2.5%. Now, ap sorry about that. Too many clickers up here. Apropos to that, the PAD subgroup did not enjoy a significant benefit in terms of reduction of adverse cardiovascular events if they were treated with Vorpaxar compared to placebo. However, they did have a benefit in terms of limb events. Though so this slide shows future hospitalization for acute limb ischemia. And those who received Vorpaxar had a significantly reduced risk of hospitalization for ALI, suggesting that Maybe the thrombotic risk that occurs in the limbs of patients with atherosclerosis or even in those who had previous revascularization procedures of the limb would be mitigated by additional antiplatelet agents such as vorapaxone. And indeed, there was a reduction in the risk for future need for peripheral revascularization as well. So these are post-hoc analyses nonetheless very intriguing and needing to be studied as we move forward with future investigations. So I talked to you now about reducing adverse cardiovascular events, and I also alluded to some studies that had benefit on limb events. <clears throat> How do we address the patient's symptoms, the one they may have come into your office with, and you've already just started talking to them, importantly, about reducing cardiovascular events, and have given them a statin, have given them an antiplatelet agent. But they still want to know what to do about their leg. And I'd like to briefly discuss some of these aspects in the remaining time. I will not focus much on revascularization. I'll allude to a couple studies that bring, compare revascularization to other therapies. But I do want to talk to you about supervised exercise rehabilitation, mention a few words about pharmacotherapy, and then talk to you about some comparative studies. So really, one of the most effective things we can do to improve the ability of a patient to walk further is to get them in an exercise training program. Typically, these are uh, three to five sessions a week for 35 to 50 minutes, uh, usually on a treadmill, sometimes on a track. The program should go for at least six months, and the results are astounding. People who participate in these programs, compared to those who do not double their walking distance, there is no drug that does that with PAD, there's no drug that does that with angina, there's no drug that does that with congestive heart failure. Exercise training doubles walking distance in patients with PAD. Why is that? Well, you might think, well, you're forming new blood vessels. Well, that's a nice thought, and maybe that plays a role, 
Uh, and there are some preclinical trials that would suggest that there's improved collateral blood vessel development, maybe from upregulation of angiogenic growth factors. But it's really not been demonstrated well in humans. There's data that exercise improves microcirculatory uh, function by enhancing endothelium-dependent vasodilation, by increased expression and activity of nitric oxide synthase. There may be improved hemorrheology. But what I think happens is that the metabolic machinery of the skeletal muscle gets better with exercise. There's increased oxidative capacity, there's increased muscle mitochondrial content and enzymatic activity, and there's also better walking biomechanics. And there's support for that. And the support is sitting in here, because many of you jog. But at one point, before you started running the 10K, or the half marathon, or the full marathon, you couldn't do it. So you started training. And as you trained, you did better and better and better. And I, I'm sure you didn't do better because you suddenly developed all these collateral blood vessels. Right? You did better because you were training your skeletal muscle to improve its oxidative capacity and mitochondrial function. And I think the same applies to patients with PAD. Plus, the more they walk, particularly under supervision, they're learning how to walk more efficiently. So first and foremost, this is an incredibly important intervention. There's a problem with it. The problem with it is CMS does not provide for reimbursement for supervised exercise training for PAD. So there's really no incentive financially for these programs to be developed across the nation. Now, the, the nice thing but the problem with PAD is that there's no drugs. It's nice because you don't have to remember a list of 10 to 15 drugs to treat, to use to treat, but that's a problem. There's only one out there that works, and that's celostazole. Solosazole is a phosphodiesterase-3 inhibitor. You use these, amirinone, milrinone, that's, those are PDE3 inhibitors. So is solosazole. But it was studied in patients with claudication. And in this meta-analysis that we did, compared to placebo, it uh, incre increased uh, walking time to about 40% over baseline. And that's good, but I can tell you it's not effective in many patients who we prescribe it to, and their side effects, including headaches and diarrhea. So I use it, but uh, I don't expect astounding results with it. The FDA issued this warning with celosazole because of its analogy to other PDE3 inhibitors, and that is if your patient's PAD also has heart failure, it shouldn't be used because of the potential for increased risk of death. It's never been shown with salicylol, but this warning is out there. What about intervention? And by intervention, I mean revascularization. Current guidelines suggest that if a patient has lifestyle-limiting claudication despite maximal therapy, this should be considered. Also, if a patient has critical limb ischemia manifest as rest pain or non-healing ulcer gangrene, revascularization is indicated not only for treatment of the symptoms, but to reduce the risk of limb loss. And again, I won't spend a lot of time going into all the details about revascularization, but show you the big picture here. And obviously, there's two general ways of doing revascularization. There's endovascular intervention with angioplasty or 
stents coming down the pike are drug-coated balloons or stent, and they're stent grafts, and there's surgical reconstruction, and the surgical reconstruction depends on where the, the stenoses are. There's aortobifemoral bypass for uh, aortoiliac disease. There's femoral popliteal bypass or femoral tibial bypass or perineal bypass if more distal stenoses are present in the limb. And there's pictures of that uh, here. And it's always nice to show these angiographic pictures where someone has a critical stenosis that is treated with a stent that goes away or with a balloon angioplasty as shown here in the femoral popliteal artery. So these are effective interventions. Now, are they the best interventions for all people? And there's not a lot of studies that would compare one type of treatment, a medical treatment, to a revascularization treatment. And I'd like to show you several of these. The first of these is the CLEVER study. CLEVER is an acronym for claudication, exercise versus endoluminal revascularization. This was a relatively small study of a little bit more than 100 uh, people randomized to optimal medical therapy, which include psilocizole, exercise training, and stenting. These patients had aortoiliac so the stenting was primarily in the iliac arteries. Many of us going into the study would have anticipated that stenting would have won hands down. Well, it turns out if you look at the primary endpoint, which was peak walking time, both exercise training and stenting did much better than medical therapy. But exercise training beat stenting in terms of walking distance. That's the primary endpoint. From the patient's perspective, it really wasn't quite that. So this is a quality of life measure, a number of these, how they felt in terms of pain severity, how they thought they were doing in terms of walking distance and walking speed or stair climbing. And looking at those measures, the patients who underwent stenting thought they were doing better than if they underwent exercise training or they were just treated with optimal medical therapy. More recently, and published just a few months ago in JAMA, was the ERASE trial. The ERASE trial compared endovascular revascularization plus supervised exercise training versus supervised exercise training alone. Now, most of these patients had infrainguinal disease, femoral popliteal disease, different than the uh, CLEVER trial. And I'm showing you here maximal walking distance, but the same would, occur, uh, would be relevant to the distance walk to the onset of symptoms. So uh, here's baseline in the two groups. This is uh, meters walked, and this is after one, six, and 12 months of therapy. And those that got the combination therapy, both a revascularization procedure plus exercise training, walk further than those who got exercise training as well. And this is very interesting data that may inform how we approach these patients and would be relevant to the development of future practice guidelines. Finally, before uh, finishing, I want to talk to you about comparative trials of angioplasty or endovascular intervention and bypass surgery, because this is an important issue uh, in the vascular community, right? Endovascular intervention can be done in many situations. There's less morbidity, but there's questions about durability and the completeness of the revascularization compared to surgical intervention. And I want to focus on two trials, one published, one in progress, that looked at patients with critical limb ischemia. The first is the Basel study, 
The Basel study compared plain old balloon angioplasty to surgical revascularization in patients with critical limb ischemia. And what you're seeing on this slide is amputation-free survival. And at the end of four years, there was no difference between the two groups in whether they received a, an angioplasty or whether they underwent surgical reconstruction. And this was important findings. But the data, as is often the case in the field, has become dated. Because now, with terms of endovascular intervention, we have more devices to use and are able to address areas of the peripheral circulation that could not be adequately addressed uh, back when this trial was done. So in progress now, and uh, Rick Powell and uh, his colleagues in vascular surgery here are participating as a site, and both Rick and I are on the executive committee. This is the BEST CLI trial, which is called BEST Endovascular, it stands for BEST Endovascular versus best surgical therapy in patients with critical limb ischemia. It's an NHLBI-sponsored trial, bringing over 2,100 patients with critical limb ischemia. And they will be randomized to an endovascular intervention at the, uh, the type of endovascular intervention at the discretion of the investigator, or they'll be randomized to surgical bypass, and the surgical operation will also be at the discretion of the investigator at each site. And hopefully this will better inform us as to what patients we should be treating with one technique versus the other. And I think this will be a practice-changing study once it's completed and reported. <clears throat> so I just want to finish up with a resource, and uh, that is our practice guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association for the management of patients with peripheral artery disease. The initial practice guidelines were written in 2006. They were updated in 2011. The writing committee is finishing its work now, so later this year we will have the 2016 practice guideline. But this is a wonderful reference. You'll see it's 190 pages. It's a terrific resource to really get insight into patients with peripheral artery disease, a much better understanding of the underlying pathophysiology and the evidence that supports our uh, treatment paradigms. So not that you should be reading 190 pages, but know that there are resources out there that you can turn to uh, as you need to uh, for your patients. So I just want to finish up with a plea. You're all seeing patients in the office, whether uh, there are primary care patients, uh, or for the cardiovascular group here, patients that uh, the, they're seeing. We need to step back and make sure that we are thinking about PAD. We need to ask the right questions for the patients. We really need to do the examination. And in patients, particularly those who are over uh, 65, or those who have risk factors like cigarette smoking or diabetes, I really encourage you to consider taking a Doppler and measuring an ankle brachial index to detect whether or not your patients have PAD so you can initiate those therapies that hopefully will reduce their risk of a future MI stroke or death. Thank you for your attention.
data comparing the shipping versus the, the exercise and looking at them in combination, if you stratify the data to look at anatomy or other characteristics, are, are both of those affecting the same subpopulations? So there are two trials I, sh I showed you. One was the CLEVER trial. That were, those are patients who had their disease confined to the autoiliac areas, the more proximal disease. They either got training or medical therapy or uh, stenting. So putting aside medical therapy, which was the loser in that situation, the other two groups got better. Exercise, the walking time improved better. Quality of life measures better with revascularization. But that was one territory. The ERASE trial, which compared uh, exercise training alone to exercise training plus revascularization was primarily disease in this area, in the thigh, uh, femoral popliteal disease. So I can't tell you the, the big picture because we're looking at two territories. And the sequence make a difference? Well, I can't tell you that from the study, but I would say this. I would say this. In any case, for aortoiliac disease, traditionally for symptomatic patients, we've been treating them anyhow with stents because they do so well and stents are durable. The question you ask is a good one. Is stenting good enough? And I would say it's good, but it's not good enough. We should be getting these people to exercise. Well, all of us should be exercising, right? That's what we're talking about. And people with PAD are no exception. So no matter what we do, I think exercise training is an important adjunctive therapy. The problem, as I've already stated, is how do we do this? Because nobody's paying for it. And if I tell people, you tell your patients, go home and exercise, yes, doc, sure. And you know that they probably won't. The benefit of training is not only the teaching that goes along with it, but you have someone that's watching you, and you're doing it because you're going somewhere to get trained, and it's happening under someone's supervision, much more likely than if you were just home doing it on your own. Mark, before you take that, um, following up on this, if you do a stent versus exercise trial, is there a sham arm to the stent part? In other words, if a patient well, thinks they're only getting exercise and you didn't do an intervention, do you think the quality of life outcomes that were shown in that one right. were because so, the patient thought they got something that they were looking for other than exercise? Because everyone tells them to exercise. So th that's a fair criticism. So that, that was not, there's not a sham arm there. Should I tell you about a study where there was a sham? Yeah. And, and what happened? Rick, you'll know this one. Um, this was the simplicity study. There was, there was a series of simplicity trials. Do you know what that is? Simplicity was looking at the efficacy of uh, radioablation of uh, the nerves of the renal artery in people with renal artery stenosis uh, and refractory hypertension. And the first two of them, the first two of them, blew us out of the water. People who had refractory hypertension and got the procedure where they had uh, the ablation of the renal sympathetic nerves dropped their blood pressure to their floor, you know, 30, 40 millimeters of mercury. And those who didn't get it, they didn't do so well. All right, so Simplicity three did a sham operation or sham procedure or a real procedure, right? And people with Renal, uh, I, I said renal artery stenosis, and if I said that, I was wrong. With uh, renal vas with um, a refractory hypertension, uh, randomized to sympathectomy or a sham procedure. And what do you think the outcome was? No difference. Right. There's a big sham effect. 
There you go. Well, that's what I'm saying. So there's a sham effect in all of these things. So the question is, in that quality well, of life assessment, was that not just the people thought we did something? Well, it could be, except there is a real physiologic benefit. And so in part, in, in, as opposed to the sympathectomy for uh, um, uh, refractory hypertension, uh, you know, we are actually improving perfusion pressure, the ankle brachial index. Things are, things are, are, are doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also highlighted the fact, <laughs> I also highlighted the fact that, you know, you're, you're tackling two issues here. With the stent, you're addressing the hemodynamic problem. With exercise, you're addressing skeletal muscle metabolic function. Why not do both? First, and then we'll come around the room. So, as a primary care physician, a lot of us uh, patients come in with either results of the lifeline screening or um, ask our opinion of whether they should get it. And I was kind of wondering your opinion on it and the value for the money. And very quickly, I know in many other societies that petition the CMS to pay for things. So, the vascular society petitioned CMS to pay for AAA screening. So, is the uh, Society of Vascular Medicine doing any competition paying for exercise? Oh, gosh, yes, for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, What's the holdup? The, the pie, um, the amount of money in the CMS pie. Uh, I mean, it, we, we, uh, we lobby Congress all the time. We lobby CMS like all the Yeah, I, you want a rational uh, answer <laughs> to a rational, I, I can't, I can't. We're, we're, pu we're pushing for it. Uh, we even pushed for ABIs to, we, just to incent people to measure ABIs. There's no reimbursement for that either. Uh, just so you know, but, so, so we, we're, we're trying. So diabetics have increased risk of peripheral vascular disease and they have different microvasculature. Should we be thinking about, does the data tell us that we should be thinking about diabetics and non-diabetics differently? Well, so di patients with diabetes have a number of problems. They get atherosclerosis. Their distribution of atherosclerosis, particularly limb, may be somewhat different. They, they tend to have more distal disease, and because of that, they, uh, they may be uh, at higher risk for critical limb ischemia because even if they have proximal collaterals downstream, still got, they still have disease. And then they have microvascular disease as well, and they have peripheral neuropathy, so they're banging their feet all the time, and they don't feel it. And then they don't have enough blood supply for adequate healing. So yeah, we need to think about them in part differently. I would say we need to think about them because they are at such high risk for PAD and at higher risk than non-diabetics for critical limb ischemia and limb loss. And for those of you who really see patients with diabetes, you think about this all the time. You're looking at their feet because you know that that could be a really problematic area if it's, if it's missed. But in terms of management, right, other than what we've talked about that applies to all patients with PAD, there's nothing unique about patients with diabetes that are currently in our therapeutic armamentarium. We advise meticulous foot care, uh, obviously, and targeting the, the risk factors as, as we usually would. And we, their indications for revascularization are pretty much the same. They're just at higher risk for more severe manifestations. But the studies you describe contain both diabetics and non-diabetics. Well, I describe many studies, so most of them did. Uh, there may be exceptions in there, but the overwhelming majority includes patients with diabetes.
So you didn't mention the lower extremity duplex exam. Right? You did mention that the ankle brachial index yeah. has high sensitivity and specificity. So when you're talking about, as a primary care physician, you're screening a large group of, looking for a large group of asymptomatic patients with peripheral arterial disease, if your ankle brachial index is abnormal, is that, do you stop there, you give your antiplatelet therapy, your statin, your exercise prescription, when do, you, when do you think you need the duplex study? When do you think you need the referral to uh, cardiology or vascular surgery? All right. Well, Mark, that's a great question. So if a patient, you, you go on to do additional imaging studies depending on what you plan on doing with the information. So if you think your patient needs another intervention, needs a peripheral revascularization procedure, but you don't, you know, you have to figure out what it's going to be, then you start considering additional diagnostic tests. In an asymptomatic patient with an abnormal ABI, you have the information you need to initiate all the appropriate risk factor modifying therapies. In a patient with mild claudication, you have the information you need to get them on an exercise uh, regimen. But on a patient with disabling claudication, who is not going to do particularly well just with all your good advice and the medications you're uh, applying. These are individuals you would consider for a revascularization procedure. For a patient with critical limb ischemia, absolutely, those are patients you would consider for a revascularization procedure. In that case, additional imaging studies are indicated to help identify uh, where the issues are and help uh, the vascular specialists here, the vascular surgeons decide uh, which would be the most appropriate uh, intervention to undertake. So if a patient, if you have a patient who you think would be appropriate for referral for revascularization, so again, uh, severe claudication, refractory medical management, critical limb ischemia, they should be referred, and those patients also should be considered, uh, well, will undergo additional diagnostic imaging, whether it's duplex, whether it's MR or CT and geography, depends on the institution. For our generalists and hospitalists in the room, do we have duplex? Do we have Doppler? I mean, uh, Dopplers in our clinics or available to us to do these ABIs very easily? We don't, and I can ask a question about that, maybe coming back to Rosh's question yeah. about screening, So, I, and, and actually the issue of uh, reimbursement, too. Oh, I didn't get to this. Yeah. I, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, so I was focusing on CMS, so I'll get back to it. So besides CMS, it, this is also, uh, it, screening asymptomatic people is also not recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. And I'm wondering if you can tell us anything um, about newer data, about evidence, and yeah. benefits of harm. So thank, thank you for bringing me back to that. So uh, is anybody here on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force? <laughs> so... Sometimes they come out with good recommendations, sometimes they're problematic. And you can probably come up with other examples and other areas where they might be problematic. So they come out with this universal statement that we shouldn't do ABI screening in asymptomatic patients for the potential risk of harm. What's the risk of harm? Well, the risk of harm is you do the screening, you get an abnormal ABI, and before you know it, the patient is set for the duplex, and then they have a stenosis, and they're being treated, and then there's the potential adverse effects for treatment for which they were getting for asymptomatic. That's, that's their part of their reasoning. The problem is they didn't refine the question well. I don't think everybody in the population should have an ABI. 
A 24-year-old healthy young woman doesn't need an ABI. But a 60-year-old smoker does. A 60-year-old patient with diabetes does. A 70-year-old person, even in the absence of diabetes and cigarette smoking, does. Because it's going to identify patients with atherosclerosis by picking up the abnormal ABI and sensitize you and the individual for their risk and enable initiation of therapies, which they may not have been on otherwise. So when the uh, task force came out with that, I wrote an editorial along with Josh Beckman, published in Circulation, with an opposing point of view. I think we need to target it. And the ACCHA guidelines that are referred to give a class one recommendation to ABI screening for asymptomatic patients if they have uh, either diabetes or cigarette or cigarette smoke or, or, or smoke cigarettes uh, are over the age of 50 or they're over the age of, of 65. So I think we need to target those patients. And in the study that we did years ago called the Partner Study, if you look at those groups of patients, one third of them have PAD. And as far as the, the life, right, now, so I have a big problem with lifeline. So for those of you who don't know, this, this is this is for the worried. Well, uh, lifeline screening does carotid uh, ultrasound, AAA screening, and ankle brachial index and bone density. For anyone who wants it, uh, it's a very fast screen, quick carotid duplex, quick ultrasound of the belly, and, and ABI, and then you know, lets the individual knows what, what it is, and they get a sheet of paper, and they take it to the doctor, and the doctor gets all nervous. You know, I really have a problem with that. I think it should fall on us, not for some company to go to shopping malls to do these screenings for people who want the information. I mean, there's always these anecdotes. But in the aggregate, I don't find that helpful. I think we, as physicians, need to be thinking about that when we see our patients for their annual visits. Great. Well, Mark, thank you very much for your... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.